Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Close, coming to you from the Great White North. I'm Michael Close, and I'm glad to have you with us. On this podcast, you'll hear interviews with magicians from around the planet. I try to ask questions designed to spark robust discussions, giving you information and insights you won't find anywhere else. If you enjoy these podcasts, I hope you'll stop by michaelclose.com and check out the products we have available. And now, let's get into today's podcast. Hey, how's everybody doing? Uh, Michael Close here. I am delighted to have as my guest uh, in this edition of Conversations with Close, an old pal, a friend of mine for at least probably 30 years, I'm guessing. Uh, Eric Mead is not only a fantastic performer, he's a creator, he's an author. Uh, He is also one of the funniest people uh, I've ever known. One of the great joys in my life is having funny people as my friends. Eric is uh, one of the very few people who had a chapter named after them in my joke book uh, that reminds me and uh, is certainly responsible. As they say, when the uh, tears of laughter ran down my leg, Eric was probably there. So Eric Mead, how you doing? Good. I'm great, Mike. Thank you for inviting me onto your little program that I don't know anything about, but I assume it'll be obvious to me what to do. It certainly will. I'll talk, and when I'm not talking, that means you should probably talk. Okay. So, so let's just talk first things first. Uh, how are you? How's the family? How's uh, life in general? I'm really uh, great. I mean, how? I'm not sure. Do you want really like deep, honest answers? Usually, when people say "How are you?", what they mean is say "Fine" and then move on, please. You know, I was in the grocery store. A quick story. Yeah. I was in the grocery store just like a week ago. I saw a guy that I hadn't seen in probably five years. And I go, hey, how's it going? And he goes, oh, I don't know. I got something with my throat. I have to go to the doctor tomorrow. And I was suddenly in the middle of this conversation that I didn't want to be in. <laughs> so, yeah. oh, in so, that ca- in that case, now, assume I, I don't really I have physical things, Mike. <laughs> I, I suffer from rheumatoid arthritis. It's acting up a little bit, but really, I'm fine. I'm really fine. My family's great, healthy. We're staying home in the pandemic, and uh, everything's everything's good. Good. I see. Th- photos every now and then of your daughter skiing and uh i think that's just fantastic she's yeah, well, uh, she's, she's great years so, old and she can really ski i i think and i'm not exaggerating it'll probably be two more years or maybe three and then i won't be able to ski with her anymore right wow. kids i learned as an adult that i'm a very good skier by most people's standards uh but the kids who grow up here i live in aspen uh, who starts skiing at two years old. You know, she took her first ski lesson when she was two years old. So by the time she's four, she can ski. Now she's eight and she can ski through the trees and in expert terrain. And she's, you know, pretty fearless because they're low to the ground. Right. <laughs> and, and they're not fragile like an old guy, uh, like me, you know. I remember Dennis Miller when he used to be funny. He had a great <laughs> joke. He, he had a great joke where he said, <laughs> Uh, for me, skiing isn't uh, an exciting series of challenges. I ski like a 50-year-old wage earner. <laughs> you know, so even it, though I haven't reached that stage yet, I still ski pretty aggressively. But, but yeah, she skis like she's wow. a little kid. You know, there was a, an interview that uh, David Regal did with David Roth uh, that Regal published in his most recent book where they're talking about coin magic. Moment and- of silence for David Roth. Okay. okay. Uh, the only the only sound you heard was the half dollar falling from my knees to the floor. 
Um, but uh, he was saying that, you know, when he was young, uh, that, that if you're interested in coin magic, you pretty much go from thieves and sheep into palming coins and things that require moves because there is not much of a, uh, you know, a repertoire of self-working coin tricks. And that when you're young, there's a fearlessness there and you don't really realize how difficult the stuff you're trying to learn is. So you just learn it anyway. So it's, I think it's that way with skiers and gymnasts. I guess that's why they start gymnasts at three and four and not at uh, 25. That's why the, uh, the whole cardistry flourishing thing is really uh, not caught on with my generation. <laughs> I, you know, we all, we all learned to do a Sybil cut from Kenner's book. We all learned that when the one that started it all was Kalusha's deck that goes inside out with three packets, right? Right. For me, anyway, and I think for most people, that was the, the genesis of that whole thing. And then Kenner's cut and then the butterfly cut that was in Carol Fox's book. And that was sort of, we all knew that. And it was like enough to be, oh, and then Paul Harris is flipping the card back and forth. Right. And that was like the repertoire of enough flourish that you could show that you really had chops with cards. Yep. Now, you know, I see these young, and I am not in the team that disparages it. I think it's awesome because I was a juggler, you know, all sure. season being a magician. This to me is not related to magic. It, it overlaps a little. If you draw the Venn diagram, there's a sliver that overlaps because they both have to do with holding cards in your hands. Right. Uh, but one is very much in the juggling camp, and I I love watching great cardistry and admiring it. Um, so I'm really a fan of all that stuff. But you don't see a lot of people my age doing the real cardistry, and I think it's because you know it's thousands of hours of sitting there, and I've already got a repertoire of material that I'm doing shows with. I just don't need you know yeah. anything more than a civil cut to make the point. Exactly. Exactly. The good news is that in 25 years, there will be a bunch of people your age doing that stuff. Of course. Of course. Um, As I told Dan Buck one time, he was he was saying all of the things that cardistry has done good for magic conventions. And I said, and you forgot one other thing. Now magic conventions are full of like attractive young men and women. Men and women, right? Because cardistry sort of cuts across. And exactly. Magic is always a boys thing. And then you'd have the sort of mousy sort of fan, the women who were like liked magic but weren't really magicians. Uh, that's all changing also. But the cardistry, if you go to those cardistry conferences, they're like men and women, young, and they're all good looking and charming. And they're not the Star Trek fans that we grew up with at magic conventions, right? <laughs> Well, I had a weird memory of being at a magic convention and there was actually a Star Trek convention in town. We're in the lobby doing stuff and James Doohan comes walking by. And it just went, wow, there's there's an overlap. That's pretty weird. So uh, you're doing Zoom shows. Let's talk about this a little bit. Is most magicians know who James Doohan is, not just Scotty. They know the actor's name because we were all nerds growing up. Of course. Of course we were. Well, I am doing Zoom shows. Yes, I am. Well, you know, it's. In fact, you're you're looking at the set. I mean, it's a little more elaborate when I'm really doing the show. But this is basically it. My little table, my curtains behind me, my little side table with some things on it. And so, how how was your experience with this? Uh, it presents certainly, uh, you know, a, a huge number of uh, unique challenges to those of us who have spent most of our lives working from for people 
you know, three or four feet away from us. And the skills that we develop by doing that, for the most part, don't seem to transfer quite so well through a computer. I I haven't talked publicly about any of this at all. I have a group of friends, my little coterie of advisors and friends who I talk about stuff with who have been with me on the evolution of this. Um, But if you're actually interested, I can tell you a lot about it and my conclusions about it. Sure. Um, So uh, at the very, in the very first place last spring, I was one of the people who said, uh, Zoom shows are stupid. It's a bad idea. Magic is meant to be live. Doing magic on TV was always once removed. Even, you know, Blaine style, showing the audience reaction, blah, blah, blah. It just, it was always to me like watching cooking shows. You can see it, but you never actually get what's the most important thing, which is to taste the dish, Yes. right? You're like, you're one step, you never get the magic. You get to watch, you get to have all the experience sort of, but then it never quite delivers. Um, and so I was sort of dragging my feet. And then a friend of mine, a uh, business friend of mine, said, hey, I'm doing a cool thing. I'm going to have a bunch of friends. We're doing a blind wine tasting nationwide. I'm sending out a bottle of red and a bottle of white to 20 people, all wrapped in paper. And then we'll get on a Zoom together and we'll open these. And then we have a sommelier coming on. He's going to guide us through a blind tasting. And I thought you could come on at the end and do a magic show. And I said, it's a terrible idea. I'm not doing it. Uh, and he said, what if like one trick and then you get to be part of the wine tasting? And this is like a, a serious wine guy. So I would like to have these bottles of wine. So I agreed. I said, OK, I'll do I'll do one trick uh, at the end of your wine tasting and then I'll be I'll get to play. I'll get to participate. Right. This is was how I stepped into the Zoom venue. Yeah. And so I started thinking about. Visual things I could just do for the camera that would look nice, you know, magic. And then maybe I could do an interactive thing, you know, like uh, everyone at the time, even before, but Zoom certainly brought it into stark relief, was doing Woody's four cards you tear in half and do all the stuff with, and you end up with a matching half somehow. It's a great trick. You probably all know what that is. And that was the trick that that brought me to the realization. I said, that trick, the Zoom... Woody's trick, tearing up the cards and doing it, is actually improved by doing it over Zoom with people all over watching, doing it at home with their own stuff. If I do it for you live in my living room, it's one thing and it's a good trick, right? But if 20 people are doing it and they're in New York and L.A. and Florida and North Dakota and Colorado and California, and it all happens while we're doing it on camera, well, it's actually, in my view, it actually is a better trick and so that was the, 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 the little putting the chisel in the safe that sort of gave me, a, oh, maybe there's a way into this that's interesting to me. Maybe I could find more tricks that are improved by doing them in this format. And so I started researching all of the tricks that were interactive tricks, all of the tricks that had been uh, telephone tricks. Right. Um, going back into, you know, the the old literature you know they there's some great telephone stuff in the kabbalah books that uh, rocker brown put out. so i started making lists uh, all of the max maven interactive stuff um called and talked to max and started getting some insight into what he thought interactive and so i put together my first show um my first show for that wine tasting it turned out to be three tricks um and not woody's trick 
but three tricks, all interactive tricks, nothing that you just watched me do on camera, all right. tricks we do things together. And what happens, happens in front of you, not just you watching it happen to me, right? Yeah. And, and so then uh, I thought, you know what, this is kind of interesting. And I don't think we're going back to work for, at the time I said, you know, at least six, nine months, right? Now it's going to turn out to be about 18 months, I believe. Right. Before we're back to, I mean, we'll start to get some work at the end of this summer, but the kind of gigs that I do take planning, right? right. These companies don't just, oh, we're back next week. We're doing a thing. This is like, okay, we're back. Then in six months, we're going to try to do a thing. Um, so I probably won't be seriously back to work till sometime in spring, about a year from now. Yeah. Right? A year from now. So I didn't want to just do nothing. So I put together a show that was like a show that I could do in Zoom where all of the tricks were me and them doing stuff. And but the magic was happening on their side of the camera, right. not on my side, on their side. And that was interesting, but it evolved to be it's too much giving instructions. We need some, yes. some variation here. So I open with a fun participatory thing. Then I do a thing they can just watch and they don't have to play with. And then I do a thing with just me and one other person. And then I do another thing they can watch. And then I do a thing with everybody playing along. And then I do one more interactive thing with a person. And so I put together this show that was sort of uneven and really didn't hold together well thematically, but it was full of good tricks for this format, right? Yeah. And, and since I don't have any place to test drive it, I just put it together and I do it. When someone hires me, I go, yeah, this is what I'm doing. Sure. You just have yeah. to be okay with the fact that this isn't, you know, this is not the best you could do, but you're learning. And so the idea is to try and do as many as you can to fail rapidly so that you can learn from it and get better quickly, right? Yeah. So I was early on in May and June, uh, I was doing shows for free for anyone who had friends of mine, you know, hey, get your family together, I'll do a show for you. Uh, and then I was taking bookings when I could. And so I started building this show. And at one point, I got deeply into the tech part of it. Uh, and I had a three camera set up and lights and a pedal switch so that I could switch from camera to camera without having to reach out in front of me or type like right. this. Um, and then, uh, and then I would talk to people uh, about the shows and their experience. And it started to become clear to me that the tech, that having technical facility and looking like you're advanced is actually working against putting across magic, right? Because ultimately, Mike, I'm a magician. You know this about me, right? I am in the miracle business. All the jokes that I do, all the bits of business, all the showbiz entertainment stuff is hopefully, in my view, in service of hitting people with really impossible things so hard that they have they have that experience. The, right. the oh, my fucking God, what, what was that? I don't believe it. Can't breathe. Right, Magic. exactly. Right? So it turns out that in the Zoom... Uh, that in this uh, environment, let's call it, uh, it's possible to put across some moments. I, I don't have a whole show full of them, but I have a couple of moments in my show that really are wow, amazing, where you, where people out there watching have the experience that they just saw something genuinely impossible. That, right, nice trick, nice trick, amazing. I don't know how he's doing it. And then all of a sudden, wait a minute. 
that's not possible. And I have two moments like that in my show. Very proud to have right. two moments like Fantastic. that. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> um, Absolutely. But if you also have tech where, you know, this curtain behind me is not real, for example. Right. Um, and if I move too quickly or sometimes if my hair gets in the light, you'll see a little green edge. Uh, so I actually have to address that. This is the set that I use. But I actually, at one point in the show, change, and I'll do it for you right now. Uh, I change to let them see for a second, you know, what's actually behind me. Ah. Uh, and, and I talk about why I have this instead as part of the show. So that when they're watching the show, they don't go, oh, there's some sort of digital effect. Oh, that's how he's doing this, right? Yes. I just go straight out. And so I also, I no longer have multiple cameras. It's just this view the entire time. Uh, I no longer move my camera down to do tabletop stuff. I've made it so all the camera never has to move. If it does have to move, I'll actually reach out and you'll see me tip my web. Because the idea is for them to believe I'm exactly like them. I'm just right. a guy with a laptop. And what they're seeing looks exactly the same as if they were sitting there at the table with me. Right. Um, so this became like the, the guiding aesthetic of my Zoom show. No tech. No graphics, no. I used to have a really interesting opening video that had some of those uh, Richard Wiseman kind of effects in there. Right. Where you, there was something on the wall behind me that was actually in front of me, and I'd reach out and take it off. Right. You know, and, uh, really, like I loved, I loved all of it, and I loved working on it. But when I got down to really, I'm trying to make magic here in this weird space. I'm trying to really give people magic moments. All they already don't trust this frame and a camera. So everything that I can do to make it seem like just a guy with a laptop, just like them in their office, is better for what I'm trying to do. Um, and and the, the one thing that goes with that is um, I actually am really savvy at using the Zoom software, right? I can zip around. I never, But I, a couple of times during my show, mumble to myself, how do I make you the spotlight with me? And I look as if I'm scanning my screen for the thing because, because I want them to feel like this guy doesn't have any tech ability. You know, yeah. it's obviously not camera work that's making these tricks happen, right? It's almost like Bob Sheets dropping the cards in the deck stab. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Well, that quality. Well, you know, <laughs> there's, there's some things you're, you're touching on here that, are really interesting to me, in, in particular in light of the fact that uh, that Mark Wilson died last night, because you are basically in the position that Mark Wilson was when he tried to sell magic to television, yeah. which was this claim that people are going to think that TV technology does the magic. And so, you know, he spent a big portion of the early part of the magic land of Alakazam Garrett, you know, trying to reassure everyone that it would look just like it looks if you were sitting in our studio audience watching it. And then, of course, all of that got destroyed with later magicians who were on TV who, who took that trust and then broke it. And now you're in a position where just sitting in front of a camera makes it suspicious. That's so right. now you have to figure out every way you can to uh, to reinstill that trust and I mean, it's, it's, it's the reason why you don't do flourishes with your Zoom com stuff before you start the trick. You don't want people to know how good you are with this software. That right. goes against what you're trying to do. I'd also, David Roth just died recently. 
And I had posted one of my favorite David Roth quotes. I was sitting with David Roth, a bunch of magicians at Ace Greenberg's house in New York. That I don't know if you were ever up there. He had this unbelievable apartment in a high rise on yeah. Fifth Avenue. Uh, and he used to host these magic gatherings in New York. Where, you know, Ace was a very serious amateur magician. Yeah, I met him one time. Yeah. Like, you know, he started out publishing with Kaufman. It was Kaufman and Greenberg, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, I was up there with David Roth one time, and David showed me an amazing magic trick that used roll downs, and he rolled the coins across his hands at one point. It's like a spellbound thing. It was really great. And then he said, this is session stuff. You would never do this in a real show, though, because it reveals your greatest secret, that you have skill. <laughs> right? And that's so different than the way most magicians think about their work today. But yes, going back to the TV, this Zoom interface is, is really, really interesting. And I don't think anyone has solved yet uh, how to actually do magic well in this format. Uh, I, I haven't, and I haven't seen, and I, for the first six months I was working on my show, I refused to watch any other magician in this format. Uh, the only show I saw was um, Helda Gamera's show from the Geffen. Mm -hmm. uh, and then and then in the fall, in September and October, I started seeing a few uh, with some friends of mine for various reasons. But I had already by then sort of established what my repertoire was. What my, and I was also not going on any of those forums on, that are on the web about this because, you know, it's just too easy to see someone's good idea. And even though I'm not a thief and I wouldn't take their idea, now I'm going, how can I do something like that? Like that. Right? And then you're off and you're no longer thinking for yourself as an artist and finding your own path. So I, I mentioned I do have some friends that I speak to. Um, and some of them were deeply into the Zoom thing and some have refused. Uh, and I find both of those points of view to be valuable to me working on it. But now I've seen maybe a dozen or 15 different magicians doing Zoom shows. And amazingly, amazingly to me, uh, it's just the same problem as, as live shows. And that is they've all landed on the same four tricks. They have a few other things. Each one has their own two or three tricks that no one else is doing. But these tent pole four tricks are in every show. Yeah. And sadly, one of those was in my show. <laughs> So I had to um, I had to pull it out. <laughs> um, no one understands this yet. No one knows what it is. It's like real time TV. It's like watching TV, except you can actually talk to the guy on TV and he'll talk back to you. Right. It's personal. It's like this weird amalgam of a personal show and a TV show with all of the problems of both and not a lot of the advantages of both. Right. It's weird. However. Um. I have likened it to the earliest days of television, the late 40s, early 50s, when, when TV was putting a camera on a soundstage and having the performers do just like a play in a theater to a live audience. And the camera was just, it might right. pan back and forth. It might tilt, but there was no sense like even the worst, worst low budget piece of crap TV show today on a nothing cable channel 
has six cameras that are moving in and out and there's close up right. and distance and a two shot here. And now we're going to do an establishing shot of the outside so that we know where we are inside this building. And it's like, this is just part of the language of using cameras and television. But if you look at early TV, it was all just like a static camera and people standing shoulder to shoulder with their faces sideways, like just talking to each other. And that's what I think zoom is right now. Yeah. It's just no one understands the medium and we, 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 we don't have our Ernie Kovacs yet, right? right? No one has gone, here's something no one's thought of and doing something amazing. So uh, I think that all of that is available and going to happen um, because I believe that even when we go back to live work being the bulk of our work, this isn't going away. No. Too many companies have learned that this is actually useful to them and inexpensive to them. And they're going to continue to have a lot of their stuff that they used to do in person in this way. Yeah. And so they'll want, you know, at the end, we could just do a 10 minute drop in with the magic guy or, you know, have some right. sort of entertainment or something. So this will always be, I call it an arrow in the quiver, right? Yeah. My yeah. Zoom show will always be one of the arrows in my quiver. I hope, it's my hope that it'll be, a sliver because because the fact is it is a poor substitute for being with people in person exactly and doing exactly magic. yeah and being able to uh, do that i will tell you uh that uh you know we did uh a season 7b in october we recorded it in october it's starting to air now and um the zoom technology has been uh really a game changer in terms of preparing the acts for fool us because uh you know we used to try to I, I would try to do some uh work with guys over skype you know previously before zoom became a thing right uh but everything that we used to do in the belize room which is that first rehearsal room you went in you know when to do your thing we did over zoom and we could do many of them so it wasn't just one visit with the producers. If there was an act, you know, maybe a young young person that we were trying to, you know, uh, move along and, and, you know, ramp up the performance a little bit, we would do many Zoom calls with them. And it, Why was Zoom superior to Skype or FaceTime? Um, I think it's only because Zoom allows a lot of people to be on the, maybe Skype does that too, but it, it seemed like Zoom was the, the medium of choice. Um, I, do, I still do a lot of stuff on Skype. Um, I don't have a, a, an iPad or an iPhone, so I can't do FaceTime. But um, I know that that, that, you know, I say again. Okay, Boomer. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. I got to hang on. One of the squirrels in my desktop here died. Hang on. Uh, is Windows uh, XP still a good operating system? Um, but... Uh, and then I did all my work uh, on Fool Us from here in Canada. Um, so, so you're actually hoping you never have to go back to Vegas, aren't you? I, 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 I uh, yeah, uh, pretty much. Uh, I can't go back to Vegas until the United States gets it under control because I can't get travel medical insurance, uh, which is a big deal for me. Um, I don't know what you mean by that. You can't because why? Uh, they won't sell it to me because the United States doesn't have COVID under control. Oh, so, got it. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I, I thought you, I thought you meant you had some underlying health issue that's so dangerous. The United States won't allow. I got it. COVID. Yeah. Yeah. yeah COVID. Well, you know what? Um, 
we're starting to get inoculations. And I think that's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And I'm, that's two A, right? They're they're doing one B right now, which will take about a month and a half, and I'm next. <laughs> Perfect. I don't know when we get ours here in Canada. Uh, whenever the United States is done, then they'll ship some up to Canada. You know, we're your we're your poor sister. Uh, and we you hope have, the winter you just have dual citizenship. You don't have to. Yeah, I can do what I want. I can do what I want. Um, so let's talk about, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because you will be able to provide our listeners with, uh, insights. Uh, a few weeks ago, I spoke about Paul Harris. Somebody had asked about what Paul's legacy and how he would be sort of ranked in the history of people who come up with stuff. And, um, I assume that everybody who's listening and watching this knows, but Eric was the co-author of uh, the Art of Astonishment books. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about how your participation in that came about? So first, let me say uh, that when you posted that you were going to have a, a talk uh, on your channel or whatever about Paul Harris, I got all excited and I jumped in there thinking, I didn't realize what that, what that was, right? I didn't realize these were just 10 minute check-in with my fans and 30 people will watch. I thought this was like, you were going to do a lecture or a thing. And I thought I'm going to come on and I'll sit in the comments and like add color while he's doing this. And so I got all fired up and I added a few things and you were like, okay, that's it. Goodbye. I was like, (laughs) yeah, they're not, uh, uh, I do get more than 30 though. So that's good. okay. Well, I don't, I don't I'm yeah. just, yeah. Um, I didn't mean to sound, um, you know, like it was a put down. <laughs> uh, well, I'm Canadian, so you can't hurt my feelings. Um, so yes. So Paul Harris and I were friends for a long time. I, I met Paul in 1980 when I was uh, 14 years old and he was in his twenties and he was riding high. He was Paul Harris. Uh, and at that time, in, in the late, from about 76 or 75, even till the mid 80s, he, he was, you know, the guy creating car, close-up magic and writing books and, and being, he was, he was Paul Harris. Yeah. Um, and I met him and we became friendly and I started a correspondence with him, which he later confessed to me was a total annoyance uh because i was persistent and and the day i would get a letter back i'd write one so it wasn't like he'd write me a letter three times a year that kid that i know it was like i'm trying to be pen pals with this guy because i was you know i i loved um I, mean, I could describe myself at that time the magic that i loved was like the classic stars of magic divern and book of magic that magic was what really appealed to me but everything about paul's writing and personality and presentation and the sort of irreverence and and whimsical humor of that appealed to me for so so I, I wanted to do Di Vernon's Triumph but I wanted to have hilarious Paul Harris patter right <laughs> this is sort of where I was as a 15 year old magician uh and so I, I tracked Paul down and I would get his address. Uh, and then when he would move, somehow a letter would arrive. You know, he told me he was once moving into a new apartment and the first batch of mail he got had a letter for me. It's like, how does he know my new address? <laughs> so, so we became friendly that way. And then um, when I started, you know, becoming my own person and not needing to talk to Paul Harris every day, uh, we became good friends, uh, like genuinely good friends. He would come stay with me. And uh, in when he was traveling around and 
um, we would work on magic together. And when he decided to write the magic, the astonishment books, you know, which was an amazing feat that Mike Maxwell pulled off, you know, Paul Harris, he wanted Paul Harris to write like one last great magic book. And Paul said, you know, books aren't where it's at really. I'm now into this totally different business. And, and the kind of magic I was inventing then isn't interesting to me because I don't do magic shows anymore. I like a trick to do in a coffee shop or, or at a, someone's house is far more interesting than a professional, you know, showpiece. Uh, so as I'm like, I'm like, I'm not even that person anymore. And Mike Maxwell said, what if I could get the rights to all of your other books and we could collect them together and then you could just write like an update of the stuff you're working on now and then it would be the big Paul Harris book. And Paul said, sure, if you do that, I'll do it. And Mike Maxwell somehow pulled it off. Yes, at, at an incredible expense, I believe. Uh, I don't know. It had to be ridiculous. But, you yeah. know, he bought those rights from Chuck Martinez and from Tannins and from Jerry Menser. And somehow he got the rights to all of it. Yeah. And so we, we that was it. Paul was like, okay, now I have to do this. <laughs> so he called me and said, I got to write, you know, like three more books, uh, basically, of new material. Can you come help me? And so I agreed to go help him. And um, we, we holed up in, uh, in an apartment in Estes Park, Colorado. Excuse me. I was living at the time here in Aspen. And we uh, rented a place in Estes Park, Colorado. And we'd go there for uh, a month on, a month off, a month on, a month off. And we'd work on these tricks in this book. And then I would take the tricks that we were working on back to the tower in Colorado. And I would sort of test drive them and give reports on, you know, what works and what doesn't work and what what needs fixing and, and what we have to just throw away and, and, and let go of. Yeah. Um, and over the course of a, it didn't take us that long. It was maybe a year and a half. We did all of that new material and wrote it all up and put those books together. Wow. Um, but you know, Paul, that was his full-time job. He wasn't doing anything else. Sure. 10, 12, sometimes 16 hours a day. He was working on material and writing those books. And, you know, uh, so, it, yeah, I'd say it was less than two years, maybe a year and a half or so uh, from when I got on and until those books were sent to the printer. And that's, um, that's the story of how I happened to become that guy. It was yeah. five, I think. So um, what's your opinion of Paul Harris material at this point in time in your life? I, well, you know, I'm, I'm a huge, not just a friend, but a huge fan. I think Paul is one of the most, not just most interesting creators, but most important creators of the last part of the 20th century. I mean, that, that sort of. He I mean, broke it, us out of a lot of, I mean, he broke us out of a lot of, you know, you know, the thinking outside the box kind of thing. You know, it's, yeah. you, you, you know, you look at some Paul Harris stuff and you went, well, I've never thought of anybody, you know, doing something like that. And I mean, I think that was really the great, you know, one of the great, great things about his stuff. Right. And there are also, you know, phases of his creative career, some that appeal to different people differently, depending on who they are. You know, for me, I, I make my living doing magic shows for non-magicians, which means I need to have a show like with a beginning, a middle and an end and themes that run through it and scripting that makes some sort of a statement that lasts an hour that will hold their attention for an hour. Plus, you know, this is the kind of material that interests me. So some of his later creative stuff, which is great and interesting, 
you know, it's just not for me. Yeah. Right. Um, so the stuff that I think is is the great, brilliant stuff for, for me personally, for my taste, comes in that period between about 1977 and about 1983 or 85, when he's writing Las Vegas close up, close up entertainer, those close up fantasies books is where it starts to get squirrely. Right. Yeah. It starts to become creativity for creativity's sake and not for performance art. Sake. Right. Um, and then by the time he writes that Tannen's book, I'm kind of like, there's not much in there for me. I, I love it. And the, and the writing is unbelievable and hilarious. And, and some of it is really brilliant. Um, and there's some tricks in there that are really good. Yeah. But they don't, for me, for my use, for my life, they don't stand up to that stuff that was in those super magic Las Vegas close-up, close-up entertainer. Uh, and the manuscripts that came out along that time. Yeah. Know? And and the other thing about Paul is that it was so different. You know, uh, people now have to understand how that the publication of a magic book, uh, but from 1970 to about 1990 was a major event still, because we did not have the benefit of things of really efficient desktop publishing and things that would allow a book to be able to be laid out and, you know, formatted and all that stuff in an easy way. So that the books that came out tended to come out from established authors who tended to be guys who've been doing it for a while. So you get a Harry Lorraine book and uh, I don't know, I, maybe you get uh, Lewis Ganson putting out, you know, one of his compilations of things that came out of the gen or something like that. And that Paul's, I mean, after the, as you made the point on the, on the Facebook video I did, that the, the first book, the Menser book, has some really good tricks in it, but was written by Jerry Menser. So you didn't get the feel of who Paul Harris actually was. And in the later books, you really get this wild and crazy guy coming out. Right. And, and there was a big appeal to that because it was so different from the magic, you know, from your father's magic books. Yeah. Anywho, completely. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned in your in your little talk that that second book, the first real Paul Harris book written by Paul Harris, uh, was written, printed, comb bound, put together page by page uh, by him and his roommate at the time, Patrick Snowden, in his apartment in less than a week. <laughs> The entire, starting with a typewriter to, okay, we have books. <laughs> they did it in less than a week. Holy cow. I know. Well, oh. you know, 24-hour sessions of comb binding. And, oh, you know. well, I know about that. I know about that. Well, listen, we need to do this more often. Is this that the end? Are we done? 40 minutes, 40 minutes flew by okay. like that. Is it unbelievable? I'd like to do this again. I'd like to do part two. If that's all right with you. Of course, sure. Perfect. Mike, Please. I love you. I'd talk to you anytime. Anytime. We need to talk we, more. We don't even have to have a we don't even have to have the goal of having something we can put out for other people to listen to. No. We, what, we, we have this technology. Let's do this every couple of weeks or so. Just to I mean, you know, we all have life, we all have families, and we all have By all the way, the... I send you texts sometimes, and I know you don't have an iPhone, so it doesn't iMessage, but you do have like a working cell phone number where I should be able to text you, right? I never ever look at this thing, but otherwise I would I would see that that that's a thing I would see. I need to keep it on me more. Uh, it's that's 
one of my New Year's resolutions. I have to be have my phone with me so I can see when text comes in. Take care of yourself, my love. Boy, it's sure good to see your face. That's great to see you, Mike. I can't wait to see you in person and give you one of those awkward Eric Mead hugs that last too long. Well, the next time I see you, the hug is going to make everyone around us uncomfortable. It's going to last that long. Be safe, my pal. Thanks very much, Mike. Good to see you. Good to see you. Take care. Bye, Bye now. everybody. This has been another conversation with Close. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please be sure to tell your friends. Like us on Facebook at Michael Close Magic. Follow us on Twitter at Mike Close Magic. And visit our website, which is michaelclose.com. If you'd like to help support these podcasts, you can do that at anchor.fm slash Michael Close. And that way we can continue to bring you high quality content. So until next time, so long from the Great White North.